on May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome to another episode of the Swamp 247 Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Hall, joined by my co-host once again, Jacob Rudner. And unfortunately, if you're listening to this episode, you're probably not feeling that great after the Gators went up to Lexington and suffered a disheartening, demoralizing, whatever you want to call it, 33-14 to defeat to the Wildcats, where it really just looked like the Gators were out of it from the beginning, were overmatched, and I don't think that's something too many people expected, including myself. No matter how you picked it, I think a lot of people were expecting this to be a close game, and that just was not the case whatsoever. So we're going to dive into it today. We're not going to dwell on it too much because I don't want to make y'all feel worse than you probably are already feeling. This is going to be a quick, maybe 15, 20 minute recap of the Florida Kentucky game. And if you want some good news, some optimism, we're going to talk about in the last segment of this podcast, the Florida men's basketball team. So stay tuned for that, or you can jump ahead. You're not going to offend me either way. So we're going to dive right into it. We're going to start talking about Florida's offense. Graham Mertz, continues to grade out well in the 90s, according to Pro Football Focus, but that is probably one of the few positives from this game. Jacob, just what stood out to you about Florida's offense and, yeah, just what was the most, I think, embarrassing aspects to you that really many people weren't expecting? But, you know, I got to give you some credit before I hand it over to you. You were someone who called this game saying that Kentucky just looked like the better team. We knew that they hadn't played really a top 25 opponent or anyone really of Florida's perceived caliber yet the statistics were impressive and you nailed your prediction in having the Wildcats win the game so what did you see from Florida's offense yeah I look I I think that it's first important to mention this you know yes I predicted that Kentucky was going to win this game but I I really think it's important to note um, if you listen to our podcast I said explicitly and I I wrote it as well over at swamp247.com um, I did not think that this was going to be a blowout fashion win for Kentucky. I, I, I had projected a Kentucky victory in what I thought was going to be a competitive, close contest between two teams that were, you know, similarly stacked in terms of their talent and ability. Uh, and, and we were going to get a good contest. Did I think the Wildcats were going to win it? Yes. Did I think that it was going to be, you know, really honestly a demoralizing? Uh, just a beatdown, 33-14 beatdown. No, I, I, I can't say I thought that. That being said, uh, some of the themes were reasonably consistent uh, with what we talked about on this show, Graham. We, we talked about how 
Kentucky had a really efficient front seven. Uh, they had six guys in the top 31 SEC players in pass rush win rate. Uh, they were extremely efficient in terms of getting home to the quarterback in their previous four games. And granted, I know uh, the level of Kentucky's competition entering this contest was not necessarily very awe-inspiring. Uh, I would argue that Vanderbilt, the bottom dweller of the SEC, was, was arguably their uh, top opponent coming into the game. Uh, but it was clear, I think, from a talent perspective, just what Kentucky had and that it was going to be a real problem for this Florida offensive line, which has battled some injuries early on in the season. And I think even at full strength, we, you and I have had some questions uh, about the potency of the unit and just its overall efficacy and, and ability to keep Graham Mertz clean. Um, and it was indeed a struggle. Kentucky did a really good job of putting pressure on Graham Mertz. Uh, Florida's offensive line was rather porous, uh, as we kind of discussed prior to the contest. It was really a distinct possibility uh, for it to look that way. Uh, Florida didn't really have much going for it through the air. I understand that uh, Graham Mertz, again, completed you know roughly 80% of his passes, and he continues to be extremely efficient. But th the reality is, is that that wasn't really a whole lot of vertical action. And you and I spoke about it on the podcast last week. Uh, this was going to be a game where Florida would need to win it by getting vertical. Uh, and, 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 you know, putting itself in a situation where it was going to be able to win the shot play battle, uh, to win the explosives as Billy Napier says it. And that wasn't even close to happening. Um, Florida's offense also struggled to run the ball. Uh, we know just how important that is in a Billy Napier offense. Last year, Florida had one of the best and most effective, you know, rushing attacks in the SEC. This year, it hasn't looked that way at all. They ran for 69 yards on 29 attempts, uh, and 2.4 yards per carry. If you include sack yardage, uh, just an uninspiring uh, performance for, for the Florida offense. And, and and it was for reasons that I don't think were necessarily surprising. Florida uh, has certain deficiencies with its skill players. No Eugene Wilson, who was still dealing with the after effects of a, a clavicle injury, uh, a bruise to the clavicle that he suffered against Charlotte. Uh, and, and Florida paid the price for it. I think that it, it, they just fell flat. They, they got out. The offensive game plan was was not very creative, in my opinion. It wasn't very imaginative. Uh, and, and Kentucky had a good game plan. And so Florida's attacks really got thwarted. You know, the simplicity of its offense uh, didn't lend itself to, to, to being enough uh, in a game where they needed to score more points than we anticipated, I think. Yeah, I think that that absolutely, you know, nails it in a sense where you had talked about the lack of vertical passing game, Florida's lack of explosive plays and how this team was not necessarily built to come back or keep up with teams when faced with double digit deficit. And I think that definitely reared its ugly head in this game, the lack of Florida's ability to run the ball to the outside as well. Uh, the usage of Trevor Etienne, I, I thought that he was limited again once uh, in terms of his usage and I do think that maybe one of the most alarming things from Florida's offense is an intangible that it's starting to look predictable of what they're going to do. The motion uh, defenses are adjusting well to them, reading well what they're doing. And as much as I have praised Graham Mertz, I do think that there is a sense where as a quarterback, you're going to need to read the defense and have a, a play call that you can go to. Again, he's been extremely efficient, but there, there's going to have to be some, I think, fix with Florida's lack of explosiveness because Mertz and Billy Napier have said that opportunities are there. And we, I think, certainly in watching the game back, saw that there were some plays that Florida could have hit for some you know, big chunks of yardage that just they didn't connect on for one reason or another. Either Mertz didn't see him or the wide receiver 
uh, dropped the ball or just good defense. And so I think that when you talk about that, the concern there for Florida's offense moving forward, especially without Eugene Wilson, I had said that I didn't expect him to play or at least to be targeted uh, during the week, maybe to be used as a decoy or in motion in some way, just so the defense had to account for him. But ultimately the Gators didn't feel confident that he could go. You saw without him there, a guy who was so prominent on that first drive against Tennessee, just how much explosion Florida's offense, I think, lacked in terms of guys who were able to, you know, make guys miss and get to the second level. So that certainly was a concern, but you also nailed, I think, maybe, I don't know if you put this out there, but we had talked about this in the immediate buildup to the game that you had said that as highly ranked as Florida's defense was coming into this game, number five nationally in total defense, that this could be a game that potentially exposes them as a unit that still has some work to do, maybe isn't as impressive as the statistics have indicated. And I do think that came to fruition a sense here where the Gators, especially from their run defense, struggled with a guy in Ray Davis that they struggled with not even 12 months ago, but when he was at a different program, just what did you see out of Florida's defense? Maybe some of what you were expecting and, and maybe some elements that surprised you a little bit. Sure. I, I, so I, I will say this, you know, I, as I continued to study uh, the Wildcats in the lead up to the game, one thing that really became clear to me was that I, I thought that there was in, there were elements to what the Wildcats did under Liam Cohen that would prove to be a real challenge for the Gators, even though they had shown a lot of progress entering play defensively. Uh, they, as Florida and Florida fans learn very quickly, uh, utilize their running back, Ray Davis, really well. Uh, he's dynamic. He's effective. They know how to get him into space. Uh, and they put him in positions where he is proven to succeed. And when they aren't necessarily pounding the rock, uh, at least in the lead up to this game, Kentucky had been more of a pass first offense and, you know, they had been successful. Were they extremely efficient? No. Uh, but were they hitting on shot plays in, in the first four weeks of the season with Devin Leary at quarterback and putting themselves in positions to, you know, score big points and to, and to be explosive, which is, you know, kind of the buzzword of the week. Uh, you needed, you needed to be explosive in this game and Kentucky had that capability. Uh, Florida was put, between a rock and a hard place. I think they needed to pick and choose between, you know, loading the box and accounting for the run versus, you know, not necessarily being as aggressive in its front seven and trying to account more for that, the, the air raid elements of that offense that exist and, and the play action that they do so effectively, or at least had done so effectively in the lead up to the game. Uh, it, it unfolded kind of interestingly though, because Devin Leary was not very effective. And I thought Florida did a fine job uh, in coverage throughout this game. They were able to limit Leary, 9 for 20 passing, 69 yards, a touchdown. It's a 45% completion percentage. Uh, he, did not, he, wasn't, he didn't throw any you know, interceptions. They didn't get him to turn the ball over, which was something that Leary became kind of prone to throughout the first four weeks of the season. Uh, but the passing performance was not that impressive. Granted, it didn't need to be. Ray Davis, as you mentioned, was spectacular. Uh, 280 rushing yards, three touchdowns on the ground. He caught a nine-yard pass for another score, so he, he reached the end zone four times throughout the game. And it all comes down to tackling, in my opinion. We saw a version of this Florida defense that looked so out of sorts uh, in its ability to, to, to create tackles. It was reminiscent of last year. And, and we had these same conversations on the podcast at this time. Uh, you know, last season under Patrick Tony, Florida really struggled to wrap up throughout games. They missed an average of more than 10 tackles per contest. This season looked much improved through the first four games of the season. Four and a half tackles missed per game. 
And that number had been eclipsed in the first two minutes of the game. Kentucky, you know, just with, with Davis' ability to run the ball and on the few pass plays that Leary was able to hit on, it was clear that tackling was a massive problem for the Gators. Uh, and, and throughout the game, 19 total missed. So we're talking about a, a performance that relative to, uh, you know, previous results for this Florida defense was a little bit uncharacteristic uh, within this season. But again, you know, you, you look at Kentucky and where Kentucky's at as a program and, uh, you know, their offensive scheme and leadership and what they try to do as a unit. I don't know that this was terribly surprising. I, I think that there was a, a very realistic, you know, it was very realistic that, that Florida was going to come out and look flat defensively against a unit that is, you know, more mature, better equipped to be able to handle teams that are successful in large part due to the talent, maybe not necessarily because they're very organized yet. They're still young in their approach and, and, and all those things. Uh, it, it was, it, it wasn't necessarily what I expected, but it wasn't, it wasn't crazy to me to see Florida struggle in the way that it did. Um, do I anticipate that this is the Florida defense that we see for the remainder of the season? No, I don't. I think that we had seen enough in the first four weeks to understand that this is a capable unit. This is a group that has talent uh, up front. Cam Jackson continues to impress me. Caleb Banks continues to impress me. Uh, Princely Uman Mielin, who obviously, you know, fans don't need me to say it, but he did not perform well uh, against Kentucky. He had been looking really good in, in the previous four weeks. And so, Look, I, it was disappointing for sure. I, I, but I do think that when it comes to the Florida defense, there, there is some benefit of the doubt uh, that I'm willing to kind of throw in that direction that I probably am not so willing to throw towards the Florida offense. I think that we saw far more concern uh, out of the Florida offensive unit than we did defensive, just all things considered. Uh, but it was disappointing. It was not effective enough. And, and as Florida has admitted, we talked to Jalen Kimber yesterday, they simply didn't do enough on the defensive side of the ball, and it led to them basically getting exposed. So uh, I look forward to seeing how Florida rebounds uh, on the defensive side of the ball. Vanderbilt should not be much of a test if all things go perfect. Uh, I know we're going to talk about that game later this week, but that's kind of a game where I expect Florida's defense to be great. Uh, and then you have South Carolina on the road, and how can this team respond? You know, brutal loss on the road at Kentucky. Uh, they lost already earlier this year against Utah. Florida has... I believe it's still only one win on the road, in, you know, in true road games or neutral site games under Billy Napier, that Texas A&M win last year. Will they add another to the column this year? And if so, against who? I think that they have opportunities to do that against South Carolina and Arkansas, uh, but that will come down to which version of the Florida defense is going to proceed moving forward. Is it the team that we saw in the first four weeks of the season, or are we in store for more of the same with missed tackles, uh, shaky run stopping and, 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 you know, really reminiscent stuff from what we saw last year. I think that that is, is going to be a massive factor in, in how the rest of this year goes for the Gators. Yeah. Obviously Florida still has a chance to double their win total over the next 32 days here. And it's too soon, I think, to look ahead and, and make predictions about how Florida's season is going to play out because this game could be an outlier, especially because as you mentioned, the amount of missed tackles was not necessarily a concern this season. And as Billy Napier has noted time and time again this is 2023 not to quote him earlier but you know this is not last year's team we had not necessarily seen through four games a high amount of missed tackles and then you see i think what 19 in this game so certainly something to watch moving forward for florida you mentioned princely uman mielin we did see him it looked like get banged up before halftime and who knows how much that may have contributed 
to his performance. This could be one where he bounces back from other guys like Scooby Williams, Jalen Kimber. I know that they would acknowledge that they did not have their best games with the Gators. So seeing how they respond, young players who are playing a large role for Florida, a chance to obviously learn from the mistakes as we saw from the Utah game. You know, I asked Graham Mertz after the game, how important to avoid finger pointing, go back to the improvement process like you did after losing to the Utes. And he said that is 100% of what it is for Florida because they put a lot on film that they're going to want to clean up moving forward. And Vanderbilt and then South Carolina offer opportunities to do that before the very critical bye week. But before we can talk about all of the future of the Florida football program, we got to talk about another aspect of the team that maybe hasn't been, depending on how you view it, the most polished product for the Gators this season. That is the special teams unit, which continues to find ways, I think, to maybe hinder Florida's competitive chances is the fair way to put it. And just, Jacob, what do you continue to see from the special teams unit that, in your mind, just needs to be corrected in, in the weeks to come, if that is a possibility? Well, look, I, I, I will go back to a very blunt point that I made on the podcast last week, and that is it is abundantly clear that Florida needs a special teams coordinator. Uh, there needs to be a change in the way the unit is operated. And, and you know, I think that there is a little bit of a misconception uh, in, in the Florida fan base that Chris Couch, Florida's coordinator analyst for the position, he's not, you know, on the full-time on-field staff, uh, that he's in charge of coordinating everything that happens and he is the unit's instructor. That's not true. The, the way that Florida divvies up the responsibility, and, and frankly, I think that this is a large part of the problem, Florida divides every aspect of special teams, field goal, PAT, punt block, kick block, kickoff, kick return, all of it is divided up amongst on-field staffers. And so when Florida works on special teams aspects throughout its workouts during the week, it is not being run necessarily by Chris Couch. There are co there are coaches assigned to each aspect and they are really in charge of coordinating the practice opportunities for those players. And this is something Billy Napier has told us now on several occasions. Chris Couch's responsibility is the game day management of the unit. And to be clear, this is not me absolving him of responsibility. He is fully part of the problem. I mean, it, there's no denying it at this point. This is the game day coordinator for the unit. But to me, I think my point here is, is this is a failure that falls on the staff. It's a failure that falls on, on Billy Napier. And it is just such a subpar unit. I mean, this was the second time in five weeks this season that Florida did not fail to put 11 players on the field on a special teams play. Now, granted, Florida did put 13 players on defense on a play on the goal line where it still got scored on, but special teams had 11 guys on the field for every single one of its plays for the second time in five weeks. The fact that that's news is pathetic, in my opinion. Uh, that That's, I mean, it's just wholly inadequate. We're talking about SEC football, not putting 11 guys on the field for PATs is not cutting it at this level. Florida did, however, not avoid to make a serious, egregious error in this contest on special teams. It can't get out of its own way. Uh, they spent the week studying a certain version of a leaping penalty in which a defensive player leaps over the line of scrimmage, uh, over offensive linemen in order to give himself a chance to block a punt. Uh, Florida, according to Billy Napier, spent time throughout the entirety of the week leading up to the Kentucky game, specifically studying 
that exact type of penalty. They sent in film to the SEC after the Charlotte game to get clarity on the rule. Uh, they had been well-versed on it. They were teaching it to players, and still they ran into the problem. And I know it was a freshman, and freshmen make mistakes, and Billy Napier said that, and, and he you know, went back to his tried-and-true saying that nobody feels worse than the individual who committed the mistake. Uh, but at what point is that unacceptable anymore? And I'm not suggesting that it is now, but I, I guess I ask you, the listener of the podcast, at what point is it unacceptable to continue to make the same types of errors that prove exceptionally costly? Uh, Florida had the penalty against Utah where they had two number threes on the field, gave Utah first down, and three plays later they score. Here, Florida has the leaping penalty. It spends a week trying to avoid said leaping penalty. It gives Kentucky an automatic first down, and Ray Davis scores on the next play. So, you know, we're talking about Florida's game-changing unit changing the game in a way that I think is pretty undesirable at this point. Uh, It is quite literally costing Florida points. I mean, it's direct impact on the score of the game. If Florida had gotten off the field, special teams commits an error, Florida's defense is back on the field, Kentucky scores, there's no momentum. Um, change needs to happen. I don't anticipate that happening during the season. Uh, Billy Napier, who we spoke to on Monday, said in no uncertain terms that he does not anticipate any changes right now uh, and that he nor his staff nor his players are overreacting to just one game. It's his exact quote. Uh, that being said, it is become abundantly clear at this point that Florida needs to be able to revamp uh, how it runs the special teams unit, how it gets guys into position, whatever the process is, it's not working. Uh, the teaching process is not working, you know, and, and, the, and the blunders don't stop there. I mean, I'm looking at my notes here. I could, I could talk about special teams for days. Florida doesn't return punts in a way that's efficient. Florida allows punts to hit the ground and bounce. Uh, they lose the hidden yardage game almost weekly due to just inefficient, poor special teams play. Uh, and decisions in the return game. It, it, it's just a unit that, I mean, it's like it's like shockingly bad. I mean, it, it, we're, we're talking about the quality of play that is so below the level of football that Florida is playing uh, that it's pretty jarring. And so uh, I look forward to seeing how Billy Napier adjusts what they do to be able to fix this. Uh, but, but certainly this is a unit that is just so substandard uh, and has cost Florida. I mean, I think that you look at Florida's three and two record and one and one record in the SEC, And there's a certain amount of this that you can put on on special teams at this point. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Yeah, I think certainly not even just this season. Part of the frustration from outsiders may be due to that this is not really not anything new. I mean, Florida's had impressive kickers before. Guys like Evan McPherson have been in here and have been extremely efficient on field goals. 
But to say that Florida's special teams play has been a, a weapon or really a massive uh, boost to the team, if you want to call it that, over the past decade, I think would be untrue to say. You know, it wouldn't be really a, a fair point that I think you could make and reasonably argue because the Gators, I think, have struggled to be explosive on special teams for more than a decade now. You go back to Urban Meyer, that was someone who used special teams to motivate players to get playing time, to be on the field and had explosive returners. And that was an element of their offense that really benefited the team. And uh, they, they pinned teams back and defense was able to capitalize. So when it comes to the outside opinion, I think that this frustration has been mounting for a while and there's a lot of fans desperate to see it improve, but we're not going to harp on it too much longer because I know I said 15 to 20 minutes. We already broke that promise. I hope you forgive me. Real quick, though, before we talk about basketball, we are going to talk about something we alluded to earlier in the episode. That is where Florida goes from here, the immediate future of the Florida football program. There's still a lot of the season left, two games upcoming that are extremely winnable in my mind. I think you may agree with me. We'll talk about them a lot more in-depth in the days and weeks to come, certainly. But where does Florida go from here? What can they do? Let me just say this before I turn it over to you. I'm someone who does not think that wholesale changes right now are 100% beneficial. There is a lot more that could be lost by trying to blow things up, showing that you're desperate, stuff like handing over play calling duties. Let me just say, Billy Napier said in July at SEC Media Days that he was going to call plays this season for Florida. That should be the end of it. I understand that fans are frustrated. I understand people are questioning his ability to be a play caller, but taking that away as a head coach, giving those duties up in the middle of the season would signal panic in my mind. It could lead to a loss of faith inside the building, which still has not been lost as, as bad as the losses have been this season, the pair of double digit losses to now to top 25 teams, right? There's a lot of belief still internally that while there is some concern, this thing is still on the right track. There's a lot to be positive about, including the hiring of Austin Armstrong, the way Billy Napier has evaluated the high school and portal ranks. I could go on and on and on to, I think, make some crazy changes or even some understandable changes could have more hindrance would be more of a hindrance to Florida than necessarily benefiting it and raising their competitive chances this season. I hope that people realize that because I see this belief that changes, no matter what, could only improve this team. And I don't agree with that. And I'm not telling people to just endure what is going to happen this season. But there are some changes that Florida can make that aren't dramatic. And I think that's what we're going to talk about right now. Just what can Florida do that is not an, um, you know, blowing things up type change right now to improve upon this three and two start we've seen. Yeah. I've said a lot on this podcast and I'm going to keep this pretty short here. I think that I agree with Graham wholeheartedly. Um, I do not think that Florida needs to make wholesale changes in the season. And not only do I not think that it's necessary, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it would be foolish in my opinion to do too much. Uh, right now, no matter how things are going, it's just not something that's going to happen. I don't think anybody's losing their job in the middle of the season. Um, I don't think that anybody needs to have, you know, I don't think that Napier needs to have his play calling duties taken away in the middle of the season. Those are just things that 
aren't happening and, 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 and arguing for them to happen uh, is a waste of time. At the same time, I, I, in my opinion, the direction of Florida is dependent on what happens, not now, but over the course of the next six months. What, what, what does this Florida coaching staff look like as we get into the spring of next year? Are we talking about a team that does not have a standalone offensive coordinator, somebody who's going to call plays, drop scheme, and make decisions on offense? Or is Billy Napier still calling plays on offense? Uh, are we talking about a Florida team that has no special teams coordinator? Or are we talking about a Florida team that has a special teams coordinator? These are the things uh, that are going to make all the difference in the world, in my opinion. Um, I do, at this point, think that Billy Napier needs uh, an offensive coordinator. Uh, it's clear to me that this offense has had its problems uh, over the last 18 games, in which Billy Napier is 9-9 nine and nine overall uh, and 5-9 and nine against Power 5 opponents. Florida's offense ranks outside the top 100 nationally among FBS teams right now in scoring. None of those are things that are going to work at the University of Florida. Uh, and he says that he is somebody who is, A, not resistant to change, and B, constantly evaluating himself. So I would be surprised personally if the combination of those things don't lead to an offensive coordinator this offseason. And I'm not saying necessarily that it's a guarantee, but I would be willing to put my name behind the fact that I would be surprised if Florida does not have a bona fide offensive coordinator for the 2024 season. That's the first thing. Um, I would say that the same thing applies to special teams. I think that Florida needs, as I've said, a standalone, on-field, full-time staff member, uh, special teams coordinator, somebody who's going to be able to understand that unit at a deep level, be in charge of its operation, and whether that's somebody who's going to share you know, responsibility in coaching another position. There are a lot of teams that have uh, special teams coordinators who double as position group coaches just to be able to maximize those individuals. That's fine. But it's time to have a dedicated special teams coach on staff. If those things happen, Graham, I do believe that Billy Napier has the ability to succeed. I like the way that he recruits. I like the way that he connects with kids and their parents, which is something I posted uh, on the Swamp 247 message board today. I, I think that that's really important. Uh, and, and look, you know, not everything is going to go exactly as designed. I think in a perfect world, you know, Napier would have the offensive play calling duties. Uh, he wouldn't have a special teams coordinator. And the, the format that we see right now would be what they stick with. Um, that's emerging as something that's not going to be possible, in my opinion. I think that uh, it will be a sign of Napier's uh, ability and readiness for this job and ability to handle it, uh, you know, if he's going to make the changes that are necessary this offseason. And so um, all is not lost at Florida. Uh, there are certainly issues, but I think they're addressable issues and things that can be solved quickly uh, with a couple, you know, rearrangements on, on Florida staff this offseason. Uh, and, and we'll see what happens from there. So I, I'm not terribly discouraged yet in terms of Florida's long-term prospects under Billy Napier. Uh, but it is clear to me that change is now necessary. Yeah, I think the primary focus for this season remaining is to keep developing your current promising players. Because you look at Florida, what, just four seniors, I believe, that are playing in large roles in this too deep for this team. I mean, you're going to potentially, as long as you keep most of the team in the fold, you're going to return a lot of your current roster for next season who can build upon this and continuing that progression so that you don't have any setbacks moving forward I think is absolutely the primary focus rather than like we said blowing this thing up right now I agree with you 100% that the offseason is going to be the biggest tell we've had so far about the Billy Napier era especially because it comes back to I, I sometimes do kind of feel a little bit 
um, conflicted. Let me call it that bringing the fan base's perspective into this. But I do think considering they, I think even Billy Napier would tell you they wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for the fans, right? That the fans make this all possible. So their perspective, I do think matters when it comes to how they will view the trajectory of Billy Napier's career in the off season. I go back to the Dan. What I mean by that is I go back to the Dan Mullen era and one for special teams, you know, they didn't have a standalone special teams coordinator under Dan Mullen either. It was Greg Knox, who was the running backs coach as well, with also the title of special teams coordinator. And that was a role that Knox had held at Mississippi State as well. And Knox was, uh, you know, a very wise guy. I don't doubt his football acumen whatsoever. I know that there was criticism. But going back to your point, Florida has not had a standalone defensive coordinator for some time. And now with the support staff army that Billy Napier has built, as well as I think the growing belief among coaches at the FBS level that more and more and more is being put on the 10 on-field guys at a growing rate from recruiting to portal to coaching to managing the roster, all of these things. I think that is a belief where sometimes some of your, your decision-making process, your hiring process is built around not wanting to put too much on your coaching plates, right? But it may look like Florida can't solely rely on a on a coordinator who's not one of those 10 on-field guys to run their special teams program. That could be something, the way things are trending, that how they move. They could evaluate the two offensive line coaches. They could evaluate, like you said, having an offensive coordinator, which looks increasingly likely, likely the way things are trending at Florida right now. So it's going to be interesting to see how Billy Napier addresses it in the offseason. Stay tuned, obviously, to Swamp 247 to follow all of our thoughts about it. You will hear it from us if he stands pat and does what Dan Mullen did after the 2020 COVID season where fans were calling for John Hevesy and Todd Grantham to no longer be with the program. And Dan Mullen, after the cleat toss, did not make any changes to the coaching staff heading into 2021. And that was ultimately a season that he did not see the end of in Gainesville. So I don't think it's necessarily going to play out like that for Billy Napier in 2024, but I do think we are in agreement that changes are likely going to happen in some form in the offseason, and we're interested to see how it all plays out. But before we can wrap up this podcast, we're going to take a break with football. We'll be back, obviously, to talk about Vanderbilt on Thursday, so stay tuned to the Swamp 247 podcast. But before we get out of here, we got to talk about Florida men's basketball. We touched on it briefly last week. Jacob has been at three viewings so far to start the season. He has had a chance to look at this revamped roster and some players are starting to show out right now. And and I think you're starting to see how guys are going to fit together, how roles are going to look. Who has impressed you so far? Who has stood out to you to begin the start of preseason camp for the Florida men's basketball team? Yeah, I, I will also let me add this before I say anybody's name. You know, some of what I'm going to say right now. Uh, is based on my own observation, and we've only seen Florida practice three times, but that doesn't mean Florida has only practiced three times. We are not invited to every practice. Uh, as media members, we only get to watch two a week. Uh, and so part, part of what I'm going to say here is based on you know what I see, but also what I'm hearing from sources uh, who, who are uh, in a position to, to maybe know more than we are from our own observations. Um, and I'm going to start with one person who I've been talking about on this show since the summer, 
uh, Graham, I'm sure you remember, is, is Australian big man, uh, true freshman Alex Condon. I, I have been impressed with him. Uh, I thought, you know, over the offseason that he was somebody who maybe was a little bit of an under-the-radar prospect. Florida maybe found a diamond in the rough. Uh, somebody who wasn't a basketball player for very long. Uh, an elite Australian rules football player. Converts within the last three years to playing a little bit of basketball. Realizes that his athleticism and, you know, just raw talents were allowing him to be quite good at the game. Uh, and then emerged some interest from, from colleges in the United States, and Florida was one of them. And so uh, at the time, I think that we kind of chalked that up to something that could maybe work out in the future, kind of a project. Um, I don't think Alex Condon is viewed that way anymore. Uh, I think he shed a little of that, a bit of that project tag, and now looks like somebody who Florida is probably going to need to rely on this year. I think that, uh, that he's nearly seven feet tall, the ability to pass out of the post has really shined to me in my observation. Uh, I've had conversations with sources that have indicated that Condon is really, you know, demonstrating feel for the game that's beyond his years and especially beyond his, his, his limited experience playing the game uh, has looked really good uh, with his shooting. He can stretch the floor and, and shoot from three. Uh, his post game is very good. The rebounding potency has been there. Uh, I think most importantly, and Graham, you know, you can touch on this too, uh, when it comes to these true freshman big men in the SEC, I think one of the things that you know immediately comes into question is whether or not they're ready to physically battle uh, in the conference. This is a very good defensive conference. There are a lot of good, strong big men uh, who play in the SEC and who are going to make it hard for somebody who's young and inexperienced and you know maybe not physically where he can be uh, in a year or two years. This is not an easy place to play. Um, and I do think that so far what we've seen has been you know, really encouraging from Alex Condon. I've seen uh, a willingness to, to, to kind of play through contact, uh, to kind of battle in the post. And, and these are things that are, that are, you know, signs that he may be ready to contribute this year. So he certainly is among my top standouts. Uh, I would give you one more before we get into a little bit of news, and that's Walter Clayton. Uh, the shooting ability is exactly as advertised. He was somebody who was extremely effective from beyond the arc last year under Rick Pitino at Iona. Uh, and has since, you know, really transitioned well to his home state of Florida. He, he grew up friends with Jervon Dexter, uh, played football with Jervon Dexter, was a football recruit very briefly. Uh, when Dan Mullen was head coach at Florida, he had received a scholarship offer. Basketball was obviously the path that he chose, and, and, and rightfully so, and has looked really good. I think that one thing I maybe wasn't expecting, knew it was a possibility, but but now seems like uh, you know, maybe even a likelihood is, is Walter Clayton seems capable of playing the point guard position. I think that initially I thought maybe he was more likely to be a two guard for Florida with occasional point guard responsibilities. Um, I think he can really go either way right now. I, this is a guy who has very good court vision. His ability to distribute is, is promising. Uh, and, and again, the shot is super clean, uh, especially from beyond the arc. So I think that those two for as early as we are in camp, uh, are my standouts at the moment. That list could expand or shrink, I suppose, uh, as we get deeper into camp. But but for now, uh, freshman Alex Condon and junior transfer guard uh, Walter Clayton are my two standouts. Yeah, as for Condon, I think that maybe one of the questions about Todd Golden, at least because it's so early at Florida that really, I don't know how anyone can have many fair questions. Let me say that. But how would he handle the recruiting ranks, especially with, I think, the ties to the international scene, the knowledge of the international game. Uh, Florida went international last season to 
finish, you know, rounding out their roster. They, they did it earlier this year, obviously with Condon, they, they added, you know, another guy as well from Lithuania um, who I still need to make sure that I can pronounce before the season gets here. Kajis Kublikas, right? So I think that when you talk about the international game, I mean, it is very, I think, difficult to project how guys are going to fare when they come over and play at the college level and they're playing against guys four or five years older than them and the physicality is raised and you're having to play, you know, twice a week, 30 minutes a night, that that can be difficult for a lot of freshmen. And if Condon is able to do that, not only will it speak highly of him, but I think it will alleviate any concerns that Todd Golden and his coaching staff can't evaluate the recruiting the high school ranks, especially evaluating international talent. I think that this would be a massive boost for Florida if they're able to get a freshman to contribute still in this post-COVID era where there's a lot of players playing their fifth, sixth year of college basketball. And you have the transfer portal where the SEC has never been deeper and there are so many good head coaches. If you can have an impact freshman who can play the full season and contribute, space the floor, bang in the post, rebound, pass in the post, find the open man consistently, that is an that is a massive massive boost not only to you, your team but your reputation as an evaluator and it's not just Todd Golden let me make sure i say that it's countless others on the staff from guys like Jonathan Sapphire Carlin Hartman all those involved in the evaluation process this would speak very highly of their ability to find under the radar talent and bring them to Florida because once you do that then you can get a lot more of the big fish because those players realize that you can you have an eye for the game and then you can put those guys in the right place. And if you can come in as a freshman in this era where there's transfer portal players coming in all the time and still get an opportunity to play, it shows that you're not necessarily biased towards playing the veterans. You're going to give the best player a chance to contribute on the floor. And if that is what happens with Alex Kahn in this season, it's going to have a lot of benefits for Florida. The other thing we got to note before we get out of here is that we have not even seen the complete Florida men's basketball team right now. They have two players currently dealing with some injuries and some rehabilitation. One of them, uh, Alex, is going to take a little bit more time to come back from his injury. But recently, Jacob, you got to tell everyone what you've been hearing about Julian Rishwain and what his role could be for Florida and maybe when he could return to the floor for the Gators. I know it's still maybe to be determined, but it looks like he's working his way back into action. Yeah, so I, we are over the 40-minute mark of our podcast. So I'm going to give you a, the the flash basketball injury report right here. There are three names uh, that I'm going to throw out there. Two injury-related, one uh, not necessarily injury-related, but certainly impacting availability. And we'll start with that one. Uh, EJ Jarvis, a transfer from Yale, is not with the Florida basketball program right now, as we reported a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's dealing with some personal matters, and there is no timetable for his return. That That's really all we have on that right now. Um, you know, Florida is supporting him uh, through what it is that he's going through uh, and, and is hopeful that, hope you know, maybe he can return uh, to Gainesville uh, and, and rejoin the team and, and be a contributor this season. That is not the priority right now. Whether or not that happens uh, is not front of mind. It would be great if it does, but, but certainly, you know, wishing the best for, for EJ Jarvis uh, as he handles some stuff away from basketball. As far as basketball-related injuries that are impacting availability, you mentioned Alex Simchik. Uh, he broke his foot right before preseason camp started. That injury is going to take some time. He required surgery, uh, had to have some pins put in his foot after he broke it. I would say that that's in that you know six to ten week range of recovery, and we're still kind of on the front end of that. Uh, he could 
be back before conference play starts. I think that that's, you know, a realistic timeline. Could be that end of November, maybe December uh, range for, for Shimchik. I'm not sure that Florida is entirely dependent on him. I think that his presence would be beneficial, uh, but it's not like he's, you know, make or break for the front court and, and is somebody that they're going to rehab and make sure that he's healthy and ready to return and, you know, put him in a position to, to, to make as uh, impactful a return to the court as he can, as opposed to rushing him back. And then the final one uh, who you mentioned, Graham was, is Julian Rishwain who transferred to Florida from San Francisco over the off season, a very good three point shooter uh, hit over 40% of his threes, in, you know, in one season in 2021 uh, with the Dons under Todd Golden, transfers to Florida. However, he did have a very serious knee injury, tore multiple ligaments uh, in his knee over in San Francisco in, I believe, in January. Uh, and he's still in the recovery process from that. He's a non-contact participant uh, in practices. A lot of the work that Rishwain is doing is coming after practices, getting shots up. But I will say this, he has an incredibly impressive and nice stroke. Last night, uh, at practice, hit 14 of 16 when I was counting. Had to have been probably 12 of 15 uh, when I wasn't you know, necessarily counting but loosely paying attention. Uh, this is somebody where, if healthy, uh, could be a real contributor for Florida off the bench, just contributing some three-point scoring that didn't necessarily happen last year uh, that Florida knows it needs within this new system. Todd Golden has talked about that directly. I think Rishwain is a candidate. When he's going to be ready is still kind of up in the air. I I've been hearing that Sometime in November, there could be a clearance for full participation in practices. To me, that indicates maybe a mid to late December return. Maybe they target Florida's January 6th conference opener at home against Kentucky if they can get him back. And if you subscribe to Swamp 247, you already know this. But uh, one thing also to keep in mind if you're a Florida basketball fan, there is also a chance that Florida chooses to redshirt Julian Wishrain. Uh, if it's clear that the return is just not going to be able to safely happen, in a timely manner, Florida could choose to medically redshirt him uh, and bring him back in 2024-25 as a six-year senior, somebody who's proven uh, and can kind of be an older cornerstone piece of next year's roster. So Florida does have options with him. Uh, they're constantly evaluating where he's at in his recovery. I don't think there's been a determination made yet uh, as to what this year might look like. I think that that decision could come closer to the you know early to mid-November range. Uh, and right now they're just focused on his recovery. So not somebody that we'll see when the season opens, but certainly uh, a name to keep an eye on just given his talent uh, and how he could contribute if, if he does, you know, return to health this full this season. Uh, and if not, then next year, certainly. A lot of great stuff there from Jacob. A lot to watch and follow over at Swamp247.com. I know we mainly cover football, it seems, but basketball right around the corner. And I just got to say, I may be biased, but I don't think anyone covers the Florida men's basketball program like Swamp247.com. And obviously that is a credit to the work Jacob Rudner does. So if you are not following his work over at Swamp247, what are you doing right now? You can sign up today, Tuesday through October 5th. You can sign up for 30% off an annual VIP membership. If you just want to try us out for the start of basketball season, you can get two months for just $1. So take advantage if you're not already a subscriber, join the best message board community in the Florida Gators network. And we'll be back on Thursday to talk Florida Vanderbilt, maybe a little basketball. Who knows? A lot will be going on. We'll be out at practice tomorrow for the Florida men's basketball team before talking to Billy Napier on Wednesday night. So stay tuned to Swamp 247. We'll be back with another episode. Thanks for listening. For Jacob Brunner, I'm Graham Hall. See you next time.